0: There is in the book of John a universal description, I believe, of the human problem, the human disease, and its cure. And of course, the cure is revolving around Christ as an alternative word, which is going to overcome human alienation and dividedness. So let me read John 1, 1 to 5, picturing this large theme, and then we'll look at the book of John. We're not going to read the whole book, but some examples from the book of how I think this theme is being worked out. John 1, 1 1-5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The opening passage of John confirms creation ex nihilo, or creation from nothing. All things, it says, came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It's a very strong statement of God existing, pre-existing all things, of Christ pre-existing all things. This means that the structuring principle of the world is not found in the world, but outside the world. John is, of course, following Genesis in the beginning. But now the darkness and chaos which are being ordered and overcome is the darkness and chaos of humankind, of human sin. John tells us of a different notion of logos, of the word. This word is God, pre-existing all that is created. And he seems to be purposely echoing and contradicting a Greek notion of logos, which is specifically not divine. This word is not a human word, as John develops it. This word is light. It's life. It's uh, as compared to the word of man, which is a world of darkness. And that's thematic in the book of John. This word is true, as over and against the lie that John will say the Jews have participated in. Um, This word is life as compared to the death-dealing word of man, is a simple way to put it. So John is describing a word, a logos. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche says, and I think this is the large mistake that people make with the book of John, he assumes that Christianity is just Plato for the masses. And he would accuse John of just being a Platonic Book in which there is a dualism of heaven and earth. Um, but earth and heaven, in this, in a Platonic understanding, are divided. But of course, here we see heaven has come to earth, that God is incarnate. John is depicting not a continuation of a dualism, but the end of dualism through Christ. And, you know, dualism. Dividedness, alienation, violence, estrangement. That's the human problem. Dualism captures both the fact it's not merely something that we live out, but it is also a belief system, uh, as well as an experiential reality. Uh, when we were in Japan, <clears throat> this becomes obvious in people's daily lives, but it's also there. Uh, in the, the picture of their belief, their understanding, that, you know, Izanami and Izanagi are male and female, and from Izanami and Izanagi, the world is generated. And of course, the strange thing is that <clears throat> the female goddess dies, and it's only from her death that you get creation. That's typical. Life and death. Maleness and femaleness are not just part of creation. They're they're enduring forces structuring ultimate reality. This is precisely what John is not doing. He's not affirming a dualism or the notion of death, darkness, evil as enduring realities. He's showing how Christ takes this apart. There is an undoing of one pole, you know, you've got light and darkness, but the light is penetrating the darkness, the light is overcoming the darkness. You have life and death, but death is going to be defeated. You have good and evil, but of course, ultimately, evil is undone. And so the human disease is this alienation, this division, but we're divided from within, uh, that this is you know, a, a struggle that Paul will talk about that we do what we do not want to do and what we want to do, we don't do. Um, and so the illusion here that uh, we can produce life from out of death, that we're always engaging in some way, and this is the, the cosmic picture, there's always this engagement as with Izanagi dying, that life will emerge from death. There's always this eternal cycle of creation and destruction in which life is preserved through death and violence. So transactions with death in war, in sacrifice, in all of life, you know, are the means to life. In John, the Logos explodes this cosmos of darkness uh, in that the light will penetrate it, you know, that the children of the devil will become the children of God, life will defeat death, heaven will come to earth. The evil fleshly world below is not an enduring autonomous reality, but is exposed and defeated. And the practical way That this is done in John. One of the ways it's done is that the duality in John is uh, is often depicted in terms of the Jews. The Jews constitute the darkness. Jesus, uh, John says, comes from above. He's from God. The Jews are from below. The children of the dark prince of this world. You are from your father, the devil. And you choose to do your father's desires. And here we find the most extreme of oppositional dualities. And I want to make a distinction here. There is a difference between a duality and a dualism. And this is the mistake that people often make in reading John. Jesus will call the Jews the devil's children. And as Miroslav Wolf has put it, what would we call people who would kill others for no other reason that they help people on the wrong days? As we read this morning on the Sabbath day. Uh, What do we think of people who kill others for no reason than that they have deviant religious views? We do not just call them intolerant, we call them evil. Or at least we should. The mistake is to imagine that Jesus' condemnation of the Jews pertains to their religion and pertains only to Jews. The Jews, the Pharisees, these are the best of people, right? They're the most religious. They're the most ethical. They're the finest representatives of humanity that we have. They are the best of people, and what the first Adam, the finest of the first Adam, would do when they meet the second Adam is kill him. Jesus says as much on several occasions. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. This is in John 7. One of the lawyers said to him, in "Reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. The Jews like prophets, don't they? The Pharisees, the scribes, they like the prophets. What kind of prophets? Dead prophets. The living prophet Jesus stands before them, he's saying, and you're going to do the same thing to me that you've done to the prophets. For the wisdom of God has said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world, I'm sorry, this is John eleven may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against the, this generation. Here is the history of murder. Blood of Abel, blood of Zechariah, that's all the murders in the Old Testament. And the Jews then have this prophet Jesus and he's saying, what you did to them, you're going to do to me. And they say, no, we're not. And this will happen again and again. And then as soon as the conversation has ended here in Luke 11, they say, let's get him. In other words, Jesus says you're going to do this, they deny it, and then they enact it. They've missed the point, and any religion that says, let's get them, has missed the point. This Christianity that reads the New Testament and says, let's get the Christ killers, is the religion of the Christ killers, right? Luther is typical of, of this tendency to read dualities as dualism in which one pole the Jews in this case are in enduring and stable opposition. So Christianity of this sort is necessarily anti-Semitic to the extremes worked out by the German Lutherans in the Holocaust, right? Jesus and John are not anti-Semitic. This was, I used to work, the Jewish rabbi I worked for, this was his main point in his classes. Christians are anti-Semitic and the height of this anti-Semitism is the book of John. I think this is a profound misunderstanding, but it's a misunderstanding that Christians have been guilty of. John alone of all the New Testament writers states that salvation is from the Jews, John 4:22. He says to the woman at the well. And in John Jesus identifies himself with the Jews. He says, "We, we Jews worship what we know." Jesus cleansing of the temple is not a rejection of the temple, but his zeal for God's house. He calls it "my father's house." He says clearly, salvation in chapter 11 is from the Jews. And all that the Jews are, including the law, the temple, and even their rejection of Jesus, is accounted for. Yet a Christian tradition geared to these oppositional dualities, um, they've turned the cross against Israel. One which was the basis of Israel's rejection and destruction. Yet Jesus tells us in John in chapter 11, it was for Israel that Jesus died. Those who most violently oppose him are the very instruments through which salvation is wrought. Not because God is pulling the strings, you know, to kill Jesus so that his anger might be appeased but because the evil he would confront is exposed in those who are his own. And so throughout the prologue and throughout John, Jesus is depicting as completing and building upon the law, the temple, the prophets, the nation of Israel. In John one fourteen, Jesus is described in terms of the tabernacle, it's the same word. He tented among us, and we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus declares, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." And this temple, of course, we're probably in eighty-five A.D. when John is written, the temple is already gone; it's been destroyed. But Jesus has declared, I am the true temple. I am the true sacrifice. This is what John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so at several points in the prologue, 1.14-18, it draws on the theophany at Sinai. Moses was not allowed to see the face of God whom no one has ever seen, Exodus says. But the Logos... Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. The law given by Moses told about creation in Genesis. But in the beginning was the Word. Here is the fulfillment of creation. Here is recreation. John 8, 6-8. You know, the woman taken in adultery. Jesus takes his finger and he writes in the dirt. It is a direct quotation from Exodus thirty-two, fifteen, when God takes His finger and writes the Decalogue. Here is the author of the law. Jesus is the author. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the embodiment of the temple, and the temple and law, uh, you know, it does not reinforce the alienation. With Jesus, but the exposes the law's incompleteness. The law cannot compete with the logos, from which all things, John 1 3 says, came into being. The cosmos came into being through him, and yet this cosmic rejection of him, in regard to this claim, he came to his own and his own. And who are the own? Well, it could be the Jews. It could just be the Jews as representative of humankind. His own human beings received him not. The black and white world of the Jews maintains rigid boundaries and oppositional stances, inside, outside, Jew, Gentile, rules of purity, cleanness, uncleanness, rules which demarcate men and women, and this defines jewish life for the jews the law with its oppositional dualities constitute their world their mistaken orientation to the law and i believe this is just the universal failure the jewish failure failure is not peculiar to the jews the jewish failure is the human failure one which imagines the law the cosmos entails an end in itself. And so for the Jews, the temple was not simply representative, you know, it is a kind of microcosmos, but it became the center of their world. Jesus as logos, as source of the cosmos, as a temple replacement, is not destroying their world, which they might imagine, but he's giving it back to them. At a time in which it indeed was destroyed. And so Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, and of course we've talked, the Sabbath is, the seventh day, contains the very purposes of the cosmos. As the embodiment of the law, you know, he threatens the totality of their reality. And so this means that Jewish notions of oppositional dualities, of law, black and white, are beginning to break down. Let me give you one example of this. But I think we would go through it, John, and provide many examples. But I think the key example is the person of Nicodemus. He's thrown into crisis by Jesus. Nicodemus is a man of the Pharisees. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's on the Sanhedrin. Which, you know, usually that means, oh, here's somebody who is unreceptive. But he comes to Jesus in the very words, he came to Jesus. It's like the other disciples. His initial profession of faith, Rabbi, you are a teacher from God. Not an earth-shattering profession. It's not as profound as Andrew who says, we found the Messiah, or Nathaniel, who says, you are the Son of God. And Jesus is not impressed. Nicodemus seems to be clinging to one world as he encounters the cosmic shattering of Jesus truly truly I say to you unless one is born anew unless one erases one notion of the cosmos and begins again one cannot see the kingdom of God and Jesus subsequently rebukes him are you a teacher of Israel and Nicodemus says what is this born again you don't understand this this notion of rebirth, of world change, of character shift, well that's thematic in the Hebrew scriptures. Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I tell how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Nicodemus cannot escape his Jewish cosmic frame so as to come to a fullness of faith i believe this is true of nicodemus throughout the book of john i think he's representative of this shift in a key scene to defend jesus they're about you know they're they're going to kill him they're going to arrest him and nicodemus comes to jesus defense right uh, but he appeals to the procedures of the law in chapter 7. When the Pharisees condemned Jesus and, you know, they had sent the officers to arrest him and they didn't. They said, we've never heard anybody speak. And Nicodemus, you know, reveals, the, unveils the kind of hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Uh, it shows that he believes in some degree, he believes something and he speaks up. He says, they, you know, the, the Pharisees, they, the that, uh, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him. Has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. It's precisely then that Nicodemus speaks up. Here is a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, who says, well, wait a minute. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And in fact, we might say, well, Nicodemus is repeating Jesus' own injunction, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus' words, however, refer to a correct judgment concerning himself, while Nicodemus refers to a concern for legal procedures. I think Nicodemus is representative in John of those who, you know, in 2.22, those whose faith is based on signs. He came to Jesus by night, though he came to Jesus, who is the light, he's hesitant, he's hesitant to openly believe. And there's a whole group of these Jews in John who, for fear of the Jews will not openly accept Christ. And so every time we encounter Nicodemus in John, this is what they'll say about him. The one who came to Jesus at night. He comes at the end of the book. He's mentioned three times in the book. He comes to help Joseph of Arimathea attend to the body of Jesus. He's the silent partner. He doesn't say anything. Joseph does all the negotiation. Maybe, and some think, the grave of Jesus marks the limits of Nicodemus' vision. It says he brought to Jesus' burial a hundred liters of burial spices. As one commentator put it, is this a ludicrous attempt to preserve from decay the body of the one who is in life and death, the resurrection and life? As one world is breaking down, the Jews would cling, Nicodemus would cling to their oppositional dualities of the law. The Jews, like Nicodemus, are in transition. Some are disciples of John the Baptist, we learn in chapter 6. In the synagogue in Capernaum, uh, the disciples, when Jesus teaches that uh, he must, you know, Go, return to heaven. They, he says this is a difficult statement. And apparently many stumbled at this point. Some were secret Christians who remained within the synagogue. They did not want to depart the synagogue and were disciples of Jesus. They believed in him, but it says that, as in 12, they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. And so Nicodemus demonstrates this cosmic crisis initiated by Christ. Jesus' confrontation with the Jews does not assume that darkness and evil are reality which he must compete with, which would contain him in the grave. It is precisely where darkness and evil are allowed to do their worst that they are undermined. In Christ's incarnation, alienation... Is overcome precisely at that point when evil appears to have obliterated goodness and when life seems to have been swallowed up in death. This is the opposite of a dualism. In this oppositional reality, uh, full reign is allowed, you know, the, the the dualism or the duality is allowed to play itself out, and it fails, it's exposed in the process. Uh, Darkness, we are assured in the prologue, did not conquer the light. Yet darkness at certain points seems to prevail, doesn't it? Even among the apostles, we've talked about Judas. But the point of the gospel is not that human wickedness at its culminating point is beyond the pale of redemption. Christ does not oppose the Jews he does not oppose Judas. He doesn't even oppose the world of darkness. Jesus loved the world and came into the world to save it, not to condemn it and destroy it, right? In the temple community of Christ, oppositional dualities, enmity between Jews and Greeks, between Uh, you know, slave and free, between male and female, between Jews and Samaritan, between classes of people, are no longer the means of doing identity. Because in Jesus, as Jesus says to the woman at the well, we worship in spirit and truth the closed cosmos in which the oppositional dualities of the law structure all things is undercut in John's picture of redemption. And so this cosmic explosion is not simply for the Jews. We all need to trade one cosmic order for another. We all need to relinquish a world uh, in which peace is gained through war, in which harmony is gained through struggle. We all need to enter the world through the word That is the new birth, the new, the revelation of the word of God.